I'm delighted to, to introduce our speaker tonight, Dejan Zodzic, whose eclectic interests make him an ideal speaker at the Getty Center um, during a time when the exhibition that was organized by my department, um, Sculpture and Decorative Arts, called Taking Shape, Finding Sculpture in the Decorative Arts, which is in the West Pavilion, um, is taking place. And we had a chance to go through the exhibition together and speak about function or non-function. Um, his lecture tonight, Why Do We Lust for Objects, um, ties in, I think, uh, very closely um, uh, to the general attitude of a museum curator, which is um, we do a lot of lusting for objects, and to the theme of, of the exhibition, where the utilitarian use of the object has been subjugated to a purely decorative overlay. Mr. Sujik is director of the Design Museum in London, which I'm sure many of you know well, and previ previously, and um, how I know Mr. Sujik's work very well, um, design and architecture critic for The Observer, as well as um, founder and editor of Blueprint and Dormus magazines, the um, architecture magazines that are still very active. He was dean of the Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture at Kingston University, um, just near London, and has also been director of the Venice Architecture Biennale in 2002, and juror um, for the design competition for London's Aquatic Centre for the 2012 Olympics, um, whose winning design is by Zaha Hadid. Um, amongst his many publications um, is the Edith Complex, How the Rich and Powerful and Their Architects Shape the World, and The Endless City, and many others. But tonight, of course, we're here because we're celebrating the publication of his latest book, The Language of Things, Understanding the World of Desirable Objects, which examines how objects that presumably exist primarily for function and utility, if I'm not misqu misquoting him, are intensely involved with appearances. So please welcome Dejan Sojik. Well, it's uh, absolutely fantastic to be here on Mount Olympus. <laughs> and... Um, it actually makes me really kind of reconsider one of my very early career options. I, I did train as an architect, but I realized very, very early on that it was my patriotic duty never to build anything um, on grounds of incompetence and general impatience. But I have to say, this environment does make one understand what architecture can do and its consolations and also the terrible lessons of never build, finish a building at the same time as Frank Geary in Bilbao if you're worrying about your reputation. I uh, gave up my architectural studies and became a, an editor, a critic, a journalist, um, and then finally migrated to curation, which in many ways is a very different activity. Um, it's much more engaged, I think, with an audience. Um, editing or even writing, I find, mostly is like putting messages in bottles, and sometimes you respond, sometimes you don't. But with an exhibition... It's much more like a theatrical experience. There are people looking at it. If they're enjoying it, there's a sense of pleasure. If they're not, then they're not there, and that's very anxiety-inducing, but it's still a very direct relationship, and I find that fascinating. But it also something I've been doing for the last, um, well, full-time for the last three years. So I suppose I'm um, new to it, and still looking at the way that things work, and I'm really very interested to see how exhibitions within museums are, are migrating, and I think that... The two shows that Antonia described here, um, I think show is probably the wrong word, um, installations maybe is a better word, do seem to um, focus on some of the things I think that have become interesting in the discussion of the areas that we're talking about. One is, I suppose, the sense of trying to um, break down barriers, to try to look at where art and design and sculpture might collide or coincide. And I think one can see another example of that in the city over at LACMA, where I spent some of the weekend looking at um, the way that industrial design or decorative art is now being introduced into art installations. And at LACMA, you can see a Rietveld chair hanging in the same space as a Mondrian painting. And you can see Le Corbusier, uh, uh, an exquisite 1926 basculant chair next to a leger. Um, Make one think really um, what does that mean? It certainly um, makes one think about price for a start. Um, you could think about the value or the, the, the ticket on that um, Mondrian is pretty different from the cost of the Rietveld 
uh, the red blue chair, which I uh, inspected the label to discover was actually a, a 1950 version, so it's quite, not, not quite so expensive as um, an original, if one can use that word in terms of design, but maybe a chair used by Rietveld himself uh, a few years ago would have gone for auction at about a quarter of a million dollars, whereas the Mondrian, who knows, um, certainly 10 times that figure, maybe more. Um, why is there this hierarchy? Um, the work is of very similar intensity, one could say. They come, come from the same historical moment, but of course one of them is cursed with the burden of utility, and the other is not. It makes one think, I suppose, about um, that um, fascinating American-Norwegian economist Torsten Veblen, who in around 1900 wrote The Theory of the Leisure Class, the first person to use the word, as far as I know, conspicuous consumption. And he took the view that most society's values are based on elevating the useless above the useful. Um, his, his view is, I think it's an interesting one, is that all societies give the most prestige to the warrior class or the priest class, who then don't have to work during the normal course of events, so they reflect that status with things like their dress. Um, you know, wearing a lot of white shows that you don't need to worry about keeping things clean. Um, wearing um, complicated high heels implies you don't need to work. Um, at one time, um, sunshine was the mark of those who had to work in the field. Briefly, it I mean, suntan rather, and then briefly it became the sign of those leisured enough to go and spend their holidays in different climates. And now, once again, the suntan has become rather the mark of those who are not worried about skin cancer. Um, in, in any case, his view would, I think, support this idea that there is a social anxiety between art and design. Um, design was once called uh, commercial art to distinguish it from the real thing. So I think there is this. Um, real tension between these two strands. Um, and even as things might become or begin to appear to be um, coinciding or converging, there's still a deep tension. If one looks at the way that contemporary art is now moving, if one thinks about the way that Jeff Koons or Richard Serra or once, but no longer with us sadly, um, Donald Judd worked, one can see a system which becomes quite close to a design process. Um, Coons maintains a, a drawing office with assistants who turn ideas into blueprints, which are and then, in the case of Coons, shipped off to a factory somewhere in eastern Germany where large and beautiful objects are manufactured with very little physical intervention from the artist himself. And one could say that the success or failure of these objects is judged in quite similar terms to those that a car might uh, be judged in. Are the weld marks invisible? Is the shine perfect? Is the superficial gloss absolutely exquisitely done? So yes, these things are perhaps converging with design, and yet they're still very far away from it. I remember once actually hearing Donald Judd himself say that um, though uh, his work might look like design, it wasn't. Um, at least it was when it was designed, but it wasn't when it was art. So that uh, up to furniture by Judd was a piece of furniture, and a piece of art by Judd was a piece of art. And though they might look be similar, they're absolutely utterly different. Now one could see in this maybe some of this social anxiety. Um, those artists who've been closest to the decorative arts sometimes have difficulties with acceptance. One thinks about people like Noguchi. And one can also see, I suppose, the way that contemporary design is now moving towards uselessness might also reflect a sense of this anxiety about status. And I'm thinking about the strange concept of limited edition furniture. Um, when uh, Mark Newson's uh, Lockheed Lounge sold some years ago um, for $1 million um, at auction, allegedly a record for contemporary design, um, we were introduced to the concept of the artist's proof, which for a chaise lounge is certainly a new concept. Um, X-display model might be another way to put it. <laughs> I'm also very conscious about the way that curators use objects to tell their own stories. Um, I was struck um, a couple of years ago going to New York to see um, Paolo Antonelli's um, remarkably uh, energetic and powerful exhibition, Design and the Elastic Mind. And at the same time, there was a show at the Cooper Hewitt called Rococo. And one could not think perhaps of two more different themes 
um, and two more different audiences. And yet I counted three objects that were in both shows. Um, astonishing, but, but true. Um, I'm here really because I, because I was um, the guest of um, the Getty and Zoccolo to talk about these shows and really the relevance that has to, to my book, The Language of Things, which um, is a book that's really based on my um, passionate sense of using design as a means to understand the world around us. Um, I've always been struck by Ernesto Nathan Rogers, um, a former editor of this magazine, uh, an architect of the uh, Italian neo-modernist movement from the 1940s and the 1950s, who in an editorial in Domus many years ago suggested that from a close enough examination of a spoon, it would be possible to intuit the kind of city that the culture that produced that spoon would build. Now, of course, this is in one sense, is a, one sense a preposterous remark, uh, an architect exaggerating for effect. And I certainly think you get rather a curious idea about Los Angeles from a close inspection of the plastic spoon that I was using on my British Airways flight on the way here the other day. On the other hand, I think there is something in that, that sense that design is a kind of DNA, a thread which runs through many objects, which can be understood and which can be used to intuit things about the objects that we use and how we use them. The book was written um, over the last uh, two years, and it began at the height of what might be called the burst of irrational exuberance that affected not just the stock market, not just banking, but everything from design and architecture to the clothes that we wore to the things that we did. Um, it was written, I suppose, with a sense of um, both um, fascination and disgust with myself as much as with the world around us, and I could simultaneously feel myself fascinated by um, but also, and moved by, but also disgusted by the sense in which I myself was consuming and buying and being seduced by the objects which design has been um, used to engineer desire for. We belong to a generation which has never had more possessions. We belong to a generation which is using th buying things, consuming things that it doesn't necessarily need. The objects that we have are becoming larger and larger. They're being replaced more and more quickly. Um, their hold on reality, on utility, is becoming more and more marginal. So the book was really a, a look at that process, um, an attempt to understand the mechanisms that are used by design, um, a sense also to look at the things that design can reflect on. I mean, my own personal trajectory, as I suppose over the years, caused me to think harder and harder about how design is used to create ideas and, and views about things. In part, I suppose, my family experience. Um, my father, uh, who was born in 1912 and um, died in 1996, could, in the course of his lifetime, have had six passports from six different countries, even though he moved three times. And that made me very much reflect on how national identities are in fact fabricated, the way that design architecture is used to create that sense of an identity which people buy into or belong to or not or reject. But certainly it's based on the sense that these things are not natural from the soil, they are made. Design is in that sense a language, it has words in it that can be used, their meanings can change over time, but they are fabricated. Which takes us to the first image behind me, money is an extraordinarily powerful example of the way that design can be used to make things appear other than they are. Um, you know, what is a more extraordinary feat than being asked to transform a rectangle of worthless paper into something that is worth 20 pounds, about um, at the moment, $35? Um, what is it that it's saying about Britain? What's it saying about value? What's it saying about uh, the layers of meaning on this? Um, there are certain triggers, certain references that money designers always use. Um, the sense of preciousness is imparted to an object by careful engraving, by the use of uh, remnant typefaces. Um, it's not just about creating value, but it's creating value in a specifically national way. This is a worthless piece of American paper, conveying the sense of value in a specifically American way. And as we all know, American money is green, which is the color of money. Um, American money is given value by these 19th century style engravings of famous, um, usually bearded, not in this case, men, um, 
by the use of the, the cross-hatching, which seems to merge sometimes into the labels for cigar boxes. Um, but are there cultures which use these things differently? This is the Euro note, um, which is based on the imagery of every, every um, note in the sequence from the smallest to the highest value is embellished on one side with bridges and on the other side with doorways and windows, which are intended, I'm told, by the designer to symbolize uh, connections, um, openings up to uh, new futures. But of course, they're always non-specific doorways, bridges, or uh, windows because there wasn't the scope to offend nation states by um, giving their currency the visible architectural landmarks of another culture. Other cultures, Switzerland, um, seem to have the self-confidence to play tricks with money. It's much more colorful. Um, it's put on its side. And uh, actually, not in this case, but in the, uh, I believe it's the 10-franc note, um, it's embellished by the portrait of Le Corbusier, um, uh, giving some sense of confidence, seeing as he actually traded in his Swiss passport for a French one. And what's going on with that process really makes me think about art again. This is a work of art um, by the American-born, British-based artist Michael Craig Martin, and it's called Oak Tree. You can tell it's an oak tree. It's a portrait of an oak tree um, because, as Michael Craig Martin will say, as an artist, he is alchemically turning this glass of water and glass shelf into an oak tree. And there are times, when I think, when the process of design is very similar to that uh, alchemical transformation. Function and utility are words which have very slippery meanings. Um, this is a piece of camouflage, military camouflage. What, on the face of it, could be more functional than that? The sense that you are trying to make your troops invisible in the field. And yet, every army in the world has its own camouflage. Um, so that you don't become victim, we hope, to friendly fire. So we're saying that camouflage's purpose is to make soldiers invisible, but invisible in a specifically American, British, Syrian, who knows, way. Um, and yet, of course, what's going on here is not really um, about concealment. It's about using design and the um, rhetoric of function to create an aura of strength, of differentness, of uniformness about the military. Another take on function is um, this image, which um, in physical um, form you can actually find in the uh, lobby to the Air and Space Museum in Washington. This is uh, an evocation of the moment um, in the um, last days of the Soviet Union when um, the American and Soviet uh, um, Earth orbiters uh, locked up in space together and orbited together. Historic moment. A moment, you might think, when there are two supremely functional utilitarian pieces of engineering locking up here in space. What could be more demanding of performance than blasting off into the, uh, out of the atmosphere? And yet, of course, you can immediately tell which half is American and which half is Russian. The Russian half looks like Jules Verne with a bathysphere, brass portholes, some kind of dentist chair inside. And the American half clearly looks as though it was designed by Harley Earl and belongs to the Detroit age of high-rise gleaming tail fins. <laughs> Design is seen sometimes expressing a sense of national identity. Um, what could be a more French car than the Citroën de Chevaux? Park one next to Hitler's... Um, Volkswagen Beetle, and you immediately know which is full of Gallic charm and which is full of German engineering and spite in theory. But is there actually anything inherently French about Pierre Boulanger's remarkable piece of engineering here? Well, is it just that we've seen it so often that this has become a visual cliche for Frenchness? Or is there something specifically French about the engineering tradition which made this very utilitarian object? And yes, there are things that you can find in this de Chevaux that Jean Prouvé might have used in his engineering techniques as well. And there is some sense of the task that Boulanger had set himself, which was to create um, a cheap all-purpose vehicle which could accommodate the um, problems of bumpy French roads, could uh, be within the price range of a French farmer and accommodate his onions. We're told that um, fashion um, is essentially a frivolous activity, but I've never bought that. I'm always... Um, 
right behind the speech from um, The Devil Wore Prada, um, in, in which the editor tells us how important fashion is because it creates jobs, it creates work. And also you have to remember that it's at, most of the Industrial Revolution was based on breakthroughs in, in engineering for powering looms and making textiles and so on. Anyway, it's also, I think, a hugely important cultural form. This is the imperial Japanese royal family. Um, and of course, what Japan did when it um, made its great opening to the West was, as I said, to change on the outside, to stay the same on the inside. So the way that Japan says it's part of the modern world is, of course, for the emperor to don this fantastic um, silk top hat and for his foreign secretary to put on this amazing pair of plus fours, um, English gentleman style. And now, of course, Japan's maturity in the world as a um, fully-fledged member of the, the first world came probably at the time in the 50s and 60s, at the time of the um, Tokyo Olympics, when Japanese filmmakers, Japanese fashion designers, Japanese architects had started to show that Japan was mature and confident enough not simply to take on um, the aesthetics of the Western world, but to shape that other world with its own uh, contribution to design and fashion. This is um, Kemal Ataturk, um, who, apart from being the founder of modern Turkey um, and an authoritarian soldier turned politician, could be seen as an early form of a politician's art director. Um, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, um, within less than two years, um, Ataturk had relocated the capital from Istanbul to Ankara. He had built Ankara from scratch, importing a Viennese architect to do it for him. He had abolished Arabic script and introduced the Latin script. He had totally changed the dress of his country. Um, he had transformed the look of his state. Uh, lessons from that process were learnt by um, other authoritarians. One could see that the first Shah of Iran was certainly fascinated by what Ataturk had done in terms of inventing a new tradition, looking back to a pre-Islamic heritage for Turkey with the, with the Hittite um, period. He had reshaped the country. Uh, even now, this portrait hangs throughout Turkey as a, ironically, a symbol of modernity, even though it's now a semi, well, early part of the 20th century image. Um, politics uses design in those senses. And again, I think back to um, my own family history and the, my family come from Yugoslavia, um, which uh, when it was breaking up in the 1990s, um, one of the first things that the um, Slovenes and the Croatians did, even before they'd actually developed their own armies, was to start thinking about national iconography and money, again, banknotes. Yugoslav dinars were uh, social realist um, uh, images, as you'd expect from a people's republic, so that um, the currency had images of um, heroic peasants, power stations, coal miners, and of course, um, if you're trying to break away from that past, the first thing you do is use a different form of iconography. So suddenly, um, modernity is spelt out by currency, which has on it uh, 19th century musicians, uh, Renaissance astronomers, uh, architects from the 18th century, looking forward by looking back. Design stretches through so many areas. I think it's fascinating that we call uh, type, uh, type face. To use that word face is implying just how much of a character and a personality there is in it. This is, of course, Helvetica. And uh, Gary Hustwitz's uh, very eloquent film last year was dedicated to celebrating Helvetica's uh, 50th anniversary. Um, at one point in the film, somebody described Helvetica as the, the soundtrack to the Vietnam War, which I think was a bit harsh. When I see Helvetica, I, I do almost hear um, Swiss cowbells and uh, green slopes. Um, we are tuned to understand certain things from type. Um, send an email in all capitals, and you know that someone has raised their voice to a shout. You don't have to go quite so far as um, Otto Eicher, the famous German graphic designer, came up with a rotis typeface. But Eicher actually at one point suggested that if only the Germans had not been quite so fond of capital letters, they might have resisted fascism more easily. This is Interstate, um, a fantastic, uh, allegedly functional uh, font designed for maximum legibility at high speed on the freeways. Um, it's now been um, adopted worldwide and brought indoors. Um, 
uh, newspaper designers in particular are using it, which seems to have the equivalent, it's like bringing something indoors and on the freeway it's the right scale on a magazine layout. It's like shouting very loudly. Um, it's about function and yet you also know somehow that this is an American typeface. It's become part of the vernacular. It's saying something about this particular place in this particular time. One of the things also that I think that triggered off writing the language of things was the sense that um, things are speeding up faster and faster, that our relationship with objects doesn't really have the time to mature as it once did. Objects once were things were seen as possessions which you might have for your whole life. You might hand it on. Um, you might give it to somebody. It was about maintaining memories, and by and large, things tended to look better as they grew older. This doesn't seem to be the case now. I can remember when Jonathan Ive produced this for Apple. It was one of the products that saved the company from financial oblivion. And at the time, it seemed like the freshest, coolest thing imaginable. The idea of citrus-colored laptops, wow, uh, of transparency, of translucency. I got one, and I thought, this is something that's so smart. I'm going I'm to grow old with this one. And of course, um, not very long afterwards, um, it looked like the height of, well, um, uh, flared trousers, possibly. Um, it, time had moved on. And of course, one can look at two different things going on here. Um, this is actually the, uh, it's not the one I bought personally, but it's the same model that I, my, my last laptop I bought uh, in a moment of weakness in a, in a duty-free store at Heathrow Airport in London, which is not the kind of place where you normally expect to be seduced by uh, retail magic. Um, things are brutally short. Um, there's no men with earpieces to kind of open the door for you. There's no sophisticated wrapping. Uh, but I suddenly decided that when I saw this thing, I had to have it. Um, it was black the language of business-likeness, the language of taking you so seriously that you don't need to be seduced by pastel colors, which, of course, is the strongest, most seductive lure of them all. And, of course, as soon as I bought this thing, as soon as I'd acquired it, I realized that this wonderful object of reason and order was let down by one or two things. The cable, the power cable, was white. Now, that doesn't actually make this thing work any less better, any less elegantly, but something about the sense of consistency had evaporated. And then even worse was the sense of, as soon as I got it out of the packaging, as soon as that special kind of plastic that people wrap computers in had come off, I realized pretty soon that the more that I held this thing, the more I touched it, the more I was actually destroying the thing that I loved. It, I was leaving my greasy fingerprints on it. By the time I started to use it, bits of hair were accumulating in the keyboard. Dandruff was collecting in the trackpad, which had begun to turn into a kind of greasy duck pond. Um, and something about design has gone wrong when we've lost that sense of making things grow in a, and, and mature in a way that makes them more desirable rather than less. And of course, what Jonathan and I had done for Apple was something very similar to what Ettore Sotsas had done in 1972 for Olivetti. Um, Olivetti was a manufacturer of business equipment, um, and Sotsas, um, the genius of Italian design, came up with the idea of treating a serious business-like object, a typewriter, uh, which up till then signified being chained to a desk and labor, and probably low-status labor at that, um, female-dominated uh, labor, he turned that into what he called a consumer object um, by making it, actually this is red and uh, two uh, spools are orange, um, he turned it into what he claimed was um, the kind of machine that a poet would take with them to the country to keep them company on a Sunday morning, which proves perhaps that designers are as much storytellers as they are shapers of form, but it was very much what Apple did with the laptop. They were using color and, and design to transform the kinds of products they were doing, and our relationship with those products. Things weren't always like that. Um, this is what British telephones used to look like. Um, it was made of Bakelite, and um, it was actually designed by um, a Norwegian painter who'd been a student of Matisse's in Paris. And in one of those curious quirks of history, he was invited by Siemens of uh, Norway to come up with the definitive design for the telephone of its period around 1929. Now, in those days, you weren't actually allowed to buy a telephone in Europe. Um, you rented it from the government, and this thing was sturdy enough to withstand being driven over by a tank, very probably, and it immediately told you what it did. Um, 
you know which end you speak into and which end you put your ear to, and you sort of understand that you turn the dial. This was an object which was telling you, it was communicating with you, what to do. I think it's rather strange how even in the era of digital telephones, this is still the sign, the dial is still the sign of telephony. It shows how certain forms and certain shapes get buried into our subconsciousnesses. But it's not only the physical shape of this object, it certainly did things to its users as well. There's a social interaction with it. The way that we answer this telephone, I don't know how things were in America, but in Britain, the British were trained to answer the telephone when it rang by um, giving their name and reciting the number that they were speaking from, and then saying, who's speaking, please? My name is. And of course, we don't do that anymore. Um, each nation had its own uh, approach to doing that. In Italy, uh, they still answer the telephone by saying pronto, which means ready, which sort of takes you back to the days of Marconi. And you have images of uh, two Italian sailors on other, each end of a transatlantic telephone cable standing by to take a message. In the days when we had one of those in my home in suburban London, um, you only had one telephone in the house if you were lucky. And of course, the telephone sat in the coldest room in the house with no chair. Um, <laughs> So that when you actually called the telephone, you knew it was going to be bad news, and you approached it with extreme caution, and you stood up to take the call, which has left my generation totally scarred about dealing with the telephone. We're still terrified with these things. But at least there was some form of etiquette, and I still don't think we have that now. With the mobile phone, we are hardwired to answer, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter who we're with, the person that's ringing is somehow more crucial to our immediate well-being. In the days when this was made, uh, a camera would last for at least 20 years, and the brass body here, when, it, when the paint started to chip away, would reveal these very seductive flashes of brass. It sort of implied that you were a Vietnam-era war photographer, uh, <laughs> that you would tape over the Nikon logo so you would actually deflect snipers' bullets. It showed that you really meant business. And of course, telephone, uh, phones now in the digital era, sorry, for cameras in the digital era, now last, on average, well, the product cycle for Canon is about 20 months. What are the things that we use to signal value? I mean, they can be the most obvious. Um, studying um, watches with diamonds, does this actually aid their functional purpose? Well, if the functional purpose is to tell the time, well, clearly not. But obviously, equally clearly, the functional purpose of a wristwatch is not about telling the time. One could say the time-telling aspect is the alibi to which you can attach the, the signifiers of the net worth of the individual wearing it. I'm also fascinated about how um, luxury is surviving in an era of um, mass production. This is uh, the most recent incarnation of the Bentley, um, which is another interesting story if we think in terms of national identity. I mean, Bentley is allegedly um, an icon of Britishness, um, uh, sort of stately homes and uh, plus fours, um, well-oiled leather. But of course, it's actually um, now a, a brand name owned by a German manufacturer. And um, this is made in England, but this particular model was, well, the head of exterior styling was a Brazilian who had previously worked for Volkswagen's Czech uh, subsidiary, Skoda. Um, and so clearly, um, a great deal of research went into uh, producing the Englishness, if that is what it is, of this design. And I suppose you could say in some ways car design, which in the days of Henry Ford was a matter of inventing a car as if none had ever existed before, uh, the ultimate modern project. Now one could compare car design to something rather closer to um, rearing rare breed sheep. It's very important that you show the bloodline in this vehicle so that it needs to show that it has its grandparents' window, wing mirrors or its parents' door handles. And on a deeper level, um, of course, um, to produce one of these is, well, because about 6,000 are made a year, it makes the economics rather crazy. Um, if Ford are building cars in the millions, of course the investment in a mass market Ford is far higher. The time spent on the design is far greater than it could be on a car which is made in these kind of numbers. So how can one actually say the mass-produced model is less purposeful, less useful than this machine, which cannot compete in terms of the quality of pieces. It suggests that luxury is a rather curious um, conjuring trick, alchemical, which concentrates on the things that the driver can touch, which respond to their self-image, the things they can hold, smell, and so on. 
but are these really about a contemporary world or are they about a subset of decorative art? And art has always been about these things, one could say. Um, uh, though contemporary artists might feel nervous about being grouped in the world of design, uh, Duchamp clearly was saying things about mass production, about shape, about value, um, in a way that Damien Hirst also was. Um, this, of course, I mean, one could see that Damien Hirst would made a brilliant art director, a fantastic advertising executive, um, a very powerful manipulative image, uh, of value, um, an extraordinary provocateur who was brilliant enough to time his last sale on the exact day when he must have actually coordinated the collapse of Lehman Brothers because it happened on the very day of the sale when some of these pieces um, were brought to market. And one can also look at how Warhol is in this world, but of course Warhol is a fascinating figure in that he um, began his career as a fashion illustrator rather than an artist. And of course the value of fashion illustration is not the same as art, and yet um, towards the end of his career, Warhol, once he'd become an artist and stopped being a fashion illustrator, embarked on the endless series of portraits, and this particular one is of Luciana Benetton, and in one of those curious quirks of fate, when Benetton began a shoe line, they used this as a trademark, and so a kind of a strange circle. And fashion, of course, um, understands the value of art. Um, this is uh, Andreas Gursky photographing Prada shoes, um, which is saying something about how Prada sees itself, about how it expects you to see its products, and about the connections between art and fashion. Uh, we'll go back to that later. Um, this is a sort of another take on, I mean, we believe that uniforms are utilitarian, that they're about practicality. This is the Italian Carabinieri, but actually it so happens that this was styled for them by Giorgio Armani. Um, which says something about how the Italian Carabinieri wished themselves to be seen, also about Armani, and something also, I think, about the nature of contemporary fashion. This is Armani's, um, he calls it his theatre in Milan, which was built for him by Tadeo Ando, uh, another case of um, using museum-quality architects to say something about fashion, but also saying something about the rituals that go with fashion. Um, the sole purpose of this space is for the twice-annual collections, which have become, a, I suppose one could call them, a form of um, the contemporary version of the Opera House. And the 19th century Opera House was a place built with grand staircases to promenade for people to see and to be seen. And that's exactly the process that now happens with the fashion collections. Who's in the front row matters a great deal, almost as much as what's on show. But of course, um, fashion actually uh, is perfect for our uh, shortened attention spans in the 20th century. You know, fashion collection is about 20 minutes uh, with no second act is um, uh, much easier to sit through than, than a grand opera. Uh, this is Prada's store in Tokyo, which is designed for Mutua Prada by um, Herzog and de Meuron, um, known for building um, Tate Modern and the um, stadium for the Beijing Olympics. Another show of how packaging, how architecture can bump packaging to say something about the value of the content. Until I saw the shows here, and I also went to see um, Lachman's uh, fascinating look at Pompeii, I used to really talk about design beginning with that moment in the 19th century when mass production severed the link between the craftsman, the maker, and the consumer. Um, of course, that connection was broken far earlier than that. But still, something did start to happen around the middle of the 19th century. And it, even then, it was a very polarized uh, response. Uh, William Morris was always described by Nicholas Pevsner as the father of modernism, perhaps in some senses because he was trying to sweeten the pill for the English, because they could see Morris as the of Englishness. And if Morris was part of it, then it must be OK. But of course, if one thinks back to what Morris believed and how he responded to the events around him, I mean, the, the crucial moment for me was in 1851 when Morris's mother took the young Morris, age 17 or 18, um, to the Great Exhibition, um, the most astonishing piece of high-tech architecture um, made by Paxton. Um, in, nine, in nine months, the Crystal Palace was built, this amazing tour de force. Um, Richard Rogers and Norman Foster still have managed to equal it. Anyway, um, Morris, um, being a precocious sort of a guy, 
um, refused to set foot inside the Crystal Palace on the basis that he knew that everything inside it would be a via machine-made travesty. Um, and his career um, took off accordingly on the basis of rejecting machinery, of trying to re-establish some connection with the Ruskinian idea of freedom in craft and an expressive form of craft, which left him paralyzed, I suppose, in that he was torn be between his real sincerity about him. He was a revolutionary socialist, no question about it, um, but he was also a wallpaper designer, which is um, a combination which is really hard to, um, hard to, hard to respond. Um, he, he found himself um, working, as he said, said himself, pandering to the swinish luxury of the rich, but according to Fiona McCarthy's fascinating biography of Morris, was also using 13-year-old child labor in his textile factory because their fingers were small enough to weave the textiles that he used to sell to them. So a paradoxical situation, um, a sense that design should have a very powerful moral purpose, that it was about uh, using that old, old trope about truth to materials, about honesty, um, about fitness for purpose, and a very high moral purpose, which has always been one continuing strand to the way that design is understood. But the other one is, of course, Raymond Lowy, um, the man who arrived in New York as a penniless um, former uh, French officer who believed in streamlining the sales curve, who hired himself a public relations consultant to get him onto the cover of Time magazine, who built a replica of his office in the Metropolitan Museum, who um, managed to persuade um, even the Encyclopedia Britannica, never mind most of the world, that he had actually designed the Coke bottle, even though um, it was done five years before he arrived in America. Um, a man who was very proud of the fact that he managed to double the sales of Lucky Strike by turning the pack color from green to white. And one can see this strand alive and well today through a series of other um, designers who um, have made themselves their own greatest creation. Designers who are storytellers, who use themselves and their images to promote their work, who use their signature as a means of adding value to objects. And that tension still exists. One could see, well, this is not actually Adita Ram's toaster for Brown. It's a Richard Hamilton evocation of a toaster made by Brown, but not actually designed um, by Adita Rams himself. And Rams could be seen as, well, Rams certainly didn't reject industrial production. Um, he designed electric shavers, toothbrushes, uh, hi-fi TV sets, but he had a sense of, or still has a sense of moral purpose, every bit as well-developed as Morris's. Um, he is the personification of less is more. He believes with a passion that it is the job of a designer to build out visual obsolescence. He spends hour after hour agonizing about the perfectly radiused corner, about the right color to make these buttons, about the sequence of these buttons. And yet, in a way, he is King Canute, trying to fight back the tide of technological change, which has made so many of his products not just visually obsolescent, perhaps they're not visually obsolescent, but functionally obsolescent. The idea of a calculator on this scale is now three generations redundant. Um, people don't use vinyl records anymore that he designed the record player for, which no longer has any function. People don't use the hi-fi systems that he did. So this is his strategy, trying to make things that are timeless beyond that, trying to build out the built-in obsolescence, and yet finding himself overtaken by events. And maybe, just maybe, Jonathan Ive is some combination of these two strands. Um, this is the uh, interface for the calculator function on the first generation of the iPhone that Ive did in a conscious homage to, to Rams. Um, he did write to him saying, no, it wasn't a ripoff. I, I do admire you. And it's, you know, Rams is deeply flattered by this. Um, and in a way, the, the functional ingenuity and the pleasure that App, Apple's products have very successfully brought to people is a sense of understanding the logic of design. And yet, after six months, this generation of the iPhone was superseded by the second generation, which made this redundant. So, the process has actually speeded up, if anything. And 
our relationship with objects that I described as petering out has accelerated, if anything. Um, compare this telephone with the Bakelite phone that I described, but also compare the number of functions that the iPhone has within it. It's a camera, it's a GPS system, it's a phone, it's a message system, it's your portal to the internet. It's showing that objects that are tailored to one specific function or functional idea are no longer what things are about. And even material objects are beginning to lose their grip on us because, of course, as we know, it's what happens inside this object. It's the software that is far more important than the physical object. The physical object gives it a character, reflects on the fact that we do carry objects with us and put them in our pockets. But our relationship and our engagement with this object is about many other layers of meaning. This is designed by Philippe Stark, um, who could be seen as Raymond Lowy's natural successor, um, another uh, talented Frenchman with a gift for self-promotion and storytelling, but also rather a brilliant sense of storytelling about objects and about disrupting our ideas about um, the languages of design. Um, the television set with the old cathode ray tube, of course, now dead in the water. Um, this was before digital had really materialized in a big way, but it was done for a, French, struggling, a struggling French television manufacturer, Thompson, which was desperate to compete with low-cost imports from Korea, Taiwan, and so on, and was resorting to design as the added lure to do that. And what um, Stark did was to disrupt our expectations about what TV sets should look like. In the old days, the wooden cabinet was a sign that the television was being mated with furniture because it was a big object in the living room. So wood and marquetry were important. This is actually going back to wood, but it's using chipboard and molding it. Um, so it's playing with our perceptions of what the design language should be, and playing with our perceptions of value. I, I talked earlier about car design and the importance that, um, or the changes that um, the way that we design cars have had. And clearly, the Model T Ford was the most important piece of car design of the 20th century, ushering, mass, ushering in mass production. Um, I think the second most important piece of car design was this, the Nissan Figaro, um, even though only something like 25,000 were ever built compared to the millions of Fords, because I think you can trace back to 1987 when the Japanese made this car, to the moment when car design flipped. It suddenly became accepted that a car was designed as a set of signals, that it was basically a, a giant toy for adults, that it was pandering to our self-image, our memories about what car design could be like. This is a sort of non-specific car from the 50s. It could be French, it could be Italian, it's certainly cute and Japanese. And it was a lesson that was learned very fast by others. This was um, Mark Newson's attempt at creating a car for, for Ford. And this was the Renault Twingo, which um, the, car, the designer of this, the team that, led, that designed this car was led by a man called Patrick Le Clement, who told me that the brief for this car was to make a car so cute that it put the family dog out of business. And <laughs> look at, the, uh, look at the, uh, the mechanisms he's used to do that. Um, the anthropomorphic smile on the radiator grill, the very large cute eyes like Betty Boop. You know, he's telling us that a car is not a machine, it's just like us. I began by talking about how design is shown in museums, and that's something that I've really begun to think about very hard at the Design Museum. Um, and one could say that the first museum in the world to be devoted to design was the Victorian Albert Museum, the museum in London, which was established by Henry Cole in the wake of the Great Exhibition. And its purpose was a very didactic one to teach a generation of designers, or commercial artists as they were called, what design might be to encourage manufacturers and the sense then was that Britain was very anxious about its industrial competitiveness in those days with Prussia, Austria-Hungary, and France. And now it's rather anxious about its competitiveness with Japan, China, and Taiwan. So same story, obviously not that successful. But of course, um, the Victorian Albert Museum very quickly became something else. It became a museum of decorative arts on the basis that that Torsten-Wieblin process of we value the useless above the useful was already in action. And the second model for 
putting design in a museum was, of course, uh, Henry Barr's um, Museum of Modern Art in New York. And there the model was that design was allowed into a museum of art, but only if the curators pretended it wasn't design, it was actually art. So um, a, a set of SKF ball bearings might be allowed into the museum across the hall from a leger painting of a ball bearing, but only if it was presented as if it were art. So you got the name of the artist and the date, and that was about it. And actually, strangely, if you look at um, some of MoMA's archives, uh, the way that it uh, lists acquisitions, even with the Belljet Ranger helicopter, which was um, uh, acquired for the, for the museum back in the 80s, is listed not so much as the engineer who designed it, but his name is listed as the artist. And the way that the information about this is presented is also powerful and interesting, and not unsurprising, this derived from art practice. So in the days when the Museum of Modern Art had Picasso's Guernica within it, it would have been fascinating to know something about the German aircraft that bombed Guernica. It would have been interesting to see the newspaper headlines that reported that event. But of course, it would also have been extraordinarily distracting from appreciating Picasso's work as a work of art. So very rightly, none of that material is there in the same way that it is interesting to know how Jackson Pollock dribbles or dribbled paint on a canvas. But again, somewhat distracting and irritating and is the curator nudging in the ribs trying to show you something in a very irritating way. It's distracting from the art. But with design, I think it's exactly the opposite. It's actually vital to know how something was made. It's important to show the process that produced something. It's important to document the ideas that go from early drawing through a prototype through to the tool that makes the object, which can be, as in this case, this is Jasper Morrison's air chair, as beautiful and as powerful and as important as the so-called finished object. So for me, design needs to be a process of explaining, of understanding what the languages of design are, uh, and of understanding that, like all languages, the language of design is a language that's designed to change over time. Um, the words, the meanings of words shift, and so do the meanings of design and architectural words. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm very happy to answer some questions if there are some, and thank you. Why were your slides in uh, black and white? <laughs> because I'm doing my best not to seduce you. <laughs> um, it's a design mannerism. The, uh, the British edition of the book was designed by a very gifted uh, graphic designer whose original intention was to make the thing look as much like a hymn book as possible. And I had to persuade him actually to incorporate captions. His idea is that we'd have fig one, fig two, fig three. But in fact, he did allow me to use some color, and I didn't show those images. There were three images that actually showed color, which document the, uh, the way in which um, black and red are used by product designers. Um, I remember noticing a long time ago that um, the Volkswagen Golf back in the 80s, was it called the Golf in America as well? It was Jujario's very beautiful car, which in the most um, popular version was black including the radiator, except for a little line around the radiator grill, which was red. And that made me remember other places I'd seen a similar mannerism and trick. And of course, Richard Sapper's Tizio Light has the same trick. It's a black object with red used just for the on and off switch. And the very first time I'd seen that, I suddenly realized was with the Walther PPP, the PPK automatic, which was allegedly James Bond weapon of choice, but was originally designed for use by the German police force in the 1920s. It was a short-barreled gun, and of course the key with a short-barreled gun that you might put in your pocket was to make sure that you don't discharge it in accident and blow your foot off. So the safety catch is a big red dot with a black uh, button across it on a black barrel. And of course, consciously or subconsciously, Jujario had seen that and was replicating it in his car to evoke, I suppose, some kind of machine-like glamour. But whether the idea of actually styling your car like a gun is a good idea, I, I 
possibly would say not. Hi, I think your presentation seems to be about the change of meaning of objects as we see them. And you mentioned you had attended Paolo Antonelli's exhibition, which I thought was wonderful and provocative of design in the elastic mind. In particular, there was an object which was a sort of a toy which a child was to take care of. Do you remember this object where you would grow your own cells or DNA into different possible replacement body parts for when you might need them later on and the child would be responsible for maintaining and like a Tamagotchi sort of an idea. Um, this was certainly the most provocative of the, um, of the pieces I found in the exhibition and I wonder if you could imagine for us the future of the idea of this right now rather provocative object and how one could imagine it as time goes on. That particular project, I, I believe, was from a group associated with the Royal College of Art in London where um, Fiona Dunn and Tony Raby, or is it the other way around, um, have spent a long time asking their students to explore in a critical way um, how the world of objects and our relationship to changing technologies and biotechnologies shifting. And that piece was asking us to confront our relationship with spare parts surgery, our relationship with machines. There's a similar piece done by the same group which tries to um, confront us with the thought if we were on a heart-lung machine, would there be another way to do it which might have a more humane relationship with an animal, humane stroke, not humane, rather than having an electronic machine keeping you alive, would you prefer to have the bellows that keep your, your lungs ventilated operated by a greyhound uh, retired from greyhound racing tracks? <laughs> and I suppose what that show and many of these objects were about was a desperate struggle by designers not to become imprisoned by some of the things that I've been describing, the sense that you are forced either to have the moral certainty but powerlessness of a Morris or a Dieter Rams, nor to succumb to the idea that your job is to sell more packets of Lucky Strike, but to ask us to think about ways that we operate. Um, I'm not sure the future will be like that. One of the most double-edged reviews I've ever read was in the New York Times of that show by Nicolo, Nikolai Toroff, who said that it was the most important exhibition on design at MoMA since Design for the Machine Age, which I'm sure is right in terms of its popular impact. But of course, Design for the Machine Age was an exhibition which showed pioneering modernists designing houses that looked like they were made by machines, but actually were made very laboriously by hand and very smoothly done. And it was at a time when architects and designers talked the rhetoric of the machine age. Um, Marcel Breuer designed uh, cantilevered steel, tubular steel chairs to look like they were made by the mile by machines, but actually were bent for him by a plumber. So it was a generation that didn't really understand what they were talking about. And maybe that that exhibition also had a sense of designers desperate to understand other disciplines, engineer, bioengineering, uh, computer theory, uh, other logical patterns, desperate to catch up, to struggle to be part of an action they suspect might be somewhere else. Well, clearly objects are dematerializing, um, and yet we still seem to be as dependent on objects for certain emotional reassurances as ever. And if one takes the desperately depressing view of um, our culture, um, we are going to go on over-consuming. Uh, and um, you know, the, kind of the stimulus package is a reminder that our job is to consume more in the same way that uh, you know, in, in the 1920s, Ernest Elmo Calkins told us that our duty was not merely to use. We had to use up. But one has to be optimistic as well, and um, maybe we'll save ourselves. Uh, my name is Eric, and I have a question. Um, 
when I was growing up, it seems like there was a really clear distinction between objects for children, which were these toys, and there were objects for adults, which were much sleeker and things we weren't allowed to touch. And now you see kids with cell phones or toys that seem very sleek, and you hear that one of the biggest purchasers of video games are adults. And so I wonder if you also agree that that distinction is blurred, and if so, does that have any meaning? It depends how you understand childhood, of course, which could be seen as a construction. Um, and at the same time that childhood, as seen in the 19th century sense, is growing ever shorter, uh, in one way, of course, it's actually growing ever longer in that adults of my generation refuse to grow up and we go on pretending that we are playing with life and that we are not actually adults. Um, I, I, think the, I think one of the understandings of, of design, as I was trying to make the point, is that we are now given permission by design to play with things which were once understood as being serious. And I suppose that's partly because we now take performance for granted. Um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, things blew up, didn't function. There were lots of kind of fake versions. And now, pretty much within a given price bracket, things function more or less well. So there's no need any longer for the reassurance of seriousness. Going on that, uh, would you think there's a separation between design and um, efficiency design? Comparing to there is a phone, there is all these combinations of items that you could use with the same phone, but design is what attracts you. Art and design are kind of like the side point of useful things, the, the modern view to handle, to keep, to, to have what comes out, the latest aesthetic that you see. Do you think there's a separation of that? Do you think selling on that point of art, oh, you see this, this is beautiful, you should buy it because it's latest and new? You think there should be a complete separation between aesthetics and usefulness? I'm very carefully trying to avoid using words like should. The trouble with you know, writing about design is that it comes from this tradition of good design is good for you, and it's a kind of hair shirt, and it's what's inflicted on people by those who believe they know better. And you know, I always very carefully try to observe without laying on the line. There's many meanings of design, and uh, but I, I, I would I would hope that design is not simply turn into the victim of this kind of um, salesmanship. You know, I think design does matter. It does reflect some profoundly important things about the world. So if it's actually rendered devoid of all meaning by the kind of salesmanship, that's, that's sad. So I hope that doesn't happen. Um, for me, uh, design, which I find engaging, I hope works on various levels simultaneously. Um, we are prepared to sacrifice certain things. Um, you know, we don't have to have every chair being comfortable. Um, sometimes you're meant to look at them. Um, we are prepared to, uh, use, to keep things which no longer work because they have meanings for us in terms of our lives. And I think a smart designer is someone who understands those many meanings. Uh, you indicated that uh, design items such as the Bell helicopter were intruding into uh, museums of art. In your institution of design, are you allowing art to intrude into your institution? It's very hard to keep it out because one could see art as being so many things and our, um, what, what doesn't work is when um, design believes that it needs to compete with art in terms of willfulness um, or difficultness. I think it's fascinating, actually. Um, you know, I, Arthur Drexler um, was, the, was the curator of art, architecture and design who installed the Belljet Ranger into the Museum of Modern Art. Um, and Drexler you know, was always uh, very sparing in his acquisitions for the design collection at MoMA. Um, he believed that too many things are driven simply by the cell function, that's cell with an S rather than a C, um, which he thought was inappropriate for the museum, which in a way, I guess, was missing the point of much of design. And he only got the Belljet Ranger helicopter into the museum once the production line that made it had been dismantled for 15 years. Now, when the Belljet Ranger was first introduced, it was the most important civilian helicopter there was because it was the first one, and therefore the clear choice of the helicopter you'd have if you were using 
a museum of design to show important design. Um, but to put one in after it's no longer made, it becomes impossible to argue that it's the most important helicopter of its time. And I guess that would tend to make one think that in a design museum, you would have to constantly be reshuffling the collection, that you have to go on finding what's the key helicopter or whatever of its time, which actually was the policy for art in the early days of MoMA, when there was an idea that once art was more than 20 years old, they give it to the Met, which um, once they first had to um, confront the possibility with a, with a Picasso, they changed their minds pretty fast. But, but, but now, of course, the Bell Jet Ranger is in the Museum of Modern Art, and it's called Winged Victory by, um, by some of its curators, um, because it's, well, it's important because it's the first and only ever helicopter to hang in a museum of art. <laughs>